Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Throwing the rules of time and reality right out the window this week. It's episode 281 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and that's right. This is a show I've actually been waiting to talk about for a while. Now is finally the time. It's Amazon's Undone, the animated series. It's not really an animated series. And why is that? Well, you'll get those answers coming up. From the cast and producers, creators that I got to sit down with at San Diego Comic-Con this year, Rosa Salazar being one of them. She plays, She's the star of the show. We've got the co-creators of the show along as well to tell you all about why you should be watching Undone on Amazon Prime Video here coming up next week. Also going to be talking about something that's already out, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Going to give you my spoiler-filled review of that some very interesting nerd news, but it's time to start things out with comics. Of course, it's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book creator Jason Sean Alexander, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just go ahead and press that power button on your tablet, your laptop, or pop the top on that long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and diving into another Marvel book this week and into the web of Black Widow, number one, written by Jody Hauser, Stephen Mooney on the art, Triona Farrell on the colors, VCs Corey Pettit on the letters, and Jung Jun Yoon with a beautiful cover on this one. Now, Marvel's website, if you go to marvel.com, has this build as sort of a year one story, but to me it doesn't really feel that way, and let me tell you why. I, to me it's more of like a vibe of atonement for year one than anything else. Now, maybe this is minor spoilers if you haven't been reading a lot of Marvel comics lately, so I'll just warn you on that right now. Natasha's kind of been resurrected as a clone with implanted memories. Now, she the, this story kind of starts, she's at a party, to set something in motion to help make good for something that she has done. But that's the real question, isn't it? I mean, is it something that she's done herself or is it something that was done by based on the memories that she has something like that so, so there's a real gray area in this book that I think is really really interesting now she's still one of the avengers she's still one of the good guys and one of her fellow avengers actually appears in this issue now I'm not sure exactly what role the team is going to play in this story long term that kind of remains to be seen and you kind of understand why she's doing what she's doing in the story. It's actually spelled out word for word and we get to see a couple of little flashbacks here and there that just make things make sense. So this is something that you could really jump right into if you wanted to, if you wanted to just read this this web of Black Widow story, you could start right out here. So in that respect, I guess it's year one ask because you could you can jump right in and not feel lost. So certainly you know, don't be afraid to do that. But, but but here's the thing. The thing that really stood out to me a lot in this book was the art. I mean, Mooney's art is typically great anyway. But the structure, especially the action sequences and how they replaced 
throughout this book really made me study the page more than I typically would. I admit I read a lot of comics. Sometimes I read them quickly. I don't get a chance to take in as much as the art as I would like in every book that I read. But then there are books like this one where because of how well it's done and how it's structured and how it's put in there and how it's just so perfectly woven, it made me draw my attention you know what? Pun intended. I'm do- Yes, that was an absolutely intentional pun. It, it made me draw my attention right to it. And it gets me into the story more. Great art should absolutely do that. And that's why it's so important to have great artists on your book. And it has this great sense of realism throughout in it as well. But then you tie in what Jody Hauser's doing with this story. And I don't know. I haven't had a conversation with jo- Jody. I haven't had the pleasure of talking with Jody before, but this just just feels like Jody's writing something that feels like she put her heart and soul into this one. Like it's almost like a story that she's been waiting to tell. This one just felt a little bit different for me for some reason. And, and hopefully I get a chance to ask her about this at some point, but it just felt like this is a story that she was really, really just heart and soul completely into because I mean, this is a very different vibe to me overall than some of the Black Widow stuff that I've read in the past or even stuff that she's been a part of. And I like it. This is a pull for me. I was really hoping to love this book. And it certainly did not disappoint. Now for something completely different. And I do mean completely different. And that is Something is Killing the Children, number one from Boom Studios. James Tin and the Fourth writing this one. Werther Del Edera on the illustrations there. They also co-created this story together. Mikael Muerto on the colors and Anne Design on the letters. Now, I'm going to tell you what this is about first. Children are kind of disappearing from a Wisconsin town, and a very scary story might actually have just become a reality. Now, basically, this book follows a character named James who's, I say, a kid... We're talking like young teenage range here, or, or or in the teens at least. Kind of seems like he doesn't have a lot of friends and wouldn't be considered one of the popular crowd. Not necessarily somebody that gets picked on a ton either. It doesn't seem like, although there really isn't a whole lot of stage set as to where James is at mentally, but he, feel, he very much feels like someone that wants to be accepted by his peers in, in in the setting that he's in. So he does have friends, but something terrible has happened and he might be the only one that actually knows what happened or did it happen. That's the other question that's going on in the story here. But there's also another mysterious character in this book that we really don't find out much about. But if there's one person that's going to believe him in this story... It's this mystery character. Now, the biggest question of this book might just be her, though, because we get to see the, I'm going to put air quotes in this monster in question, only because there's still a question of exactly what happened here in this book. It seems obvious, but I, you know how you just kind of get that feeling when you're reading something that you think it's obvious, but it might not be? That's kind of how I feel about this, and I could be super wrong. It could be really obvious, and I just might be overdoing it. But that's why I'm not ready to call it that just yet. Now, we even get to see exactly what happened, which anytime I read something horror-related when it comes to comics, it doesn't typically scare me. Now, it might creep me out a little bit. It might gross me out here and there, stuff like that. 
This one actually legitimately scared me to the point where I wasn't sure I wanted to keep going. I'm not even kidding, and I don't feel like I'm squeamish or anything, and I don't feel like I necessarily, you know, chicken out when it comes to reading books like this, but I, I was legitimately freaked by what I saw on the page, and that's a testament to Deledra's art. I, I I think I think because I was I was legitimately wondering if I wanted to keep looking at what I was looking at, and and that's but it wasn't just that though the the way this whole ordeal is done it plays out for James was so incredibly illustrated that you get to see these color variations during certain emotional moments in the book that I thought was truly astounding. Not only that, you, there, there's interesting choices in shading here as well. When you get to see the creature aspect, it's very, very jarring and abrupt, and I really, really love that about this book. Just and plus, there's just this eerie vibe that James Tenning the Fourth creates throughout this entire story, and it's amazing how somebody like this can go from writing like a Batman story, which is which has a completely different vibe to it. To something like this, there's not many writers that have that kind of range, and I don't think that James Ten and the Fourth gets enough credit for being able to do something like that. So to go from something like this to to like a Batman story, which some of his Batman stories have been pretty creepy too. Don't get me wrong, but this is a whole other level. Now here's my problem: I want to read more, but now I'm genuinely freaked out. So I'm going to say that this is a poll for me, but this is one of those things I'm going to be reading in the bright of day, probably with people around me to make sure I'm okay. Just saying, that's just me, personal opinion. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, time to dive into some spoilers in my review of The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, Season 1 from Netflix on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is cartoonist Scotty Young, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. We've traveled a great distance, and it's finally time to save Thra, or at least we're going backwards. Anyway, my spoiler-filled review of The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance from Netflix. The only thing I won't spoil for you, though, is the ending, because I know that I give spoiler warnings on this, and certainly spoilers from here on out, but I don't like spoiling the ending just in case. I, I know I kind of used to do that, and I thought to myself, eh, let's let's really stop doing that. So I'm not going to spoil the ending of Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, because there there is kind of a whopper there at the end, and I don't want to I don't want to spoil that for you just in case you haven't seen it. I I always say skip ahead, but you know what? If you skip ahead to the wrong point and you hear it accidentally, so I'm not going to do that. So basically, you've got the they they lay the groundwork for you about Mother Agra and the deal that she's made with the Skeksis and, and how they end up with the crystal and and what happens and she goes to explore the cosmos and whatever they gave her to to do that. And then so the Skeksis are left with the crystal. You've got the Gelfling who are kinda who kind of serve the Skeksis, even though they kinda don't there's an air of they live in harmony sort of thing. But they really don't because the Skeksis have been corrupting the crystal basically the entire time. And then the Gelfling find out about it. And and the Skeksis are also on this greedy quest for immortality, which is, you know, not necessarily uncommon for, for a villain, right? And one thing that I realized right away 
as I'm watching Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, I forgot how annoying and just really evil the Skeksis can be, if we're being honest. And I'm not saying annoying is a criticism. I'm saying is it's easy to really, really hate them, is what I'm trying to get at here. They're arrogant. They're, they are the worst kind of power-driven rich people, even though they're rich in their own minds, maybe because it's not necessarily like there's currency that that's at play here, but in the class system, they set themselves so much higher than anyone and anything else. And that's not enough. And that's frustrating as, as, as somebody who, who is somebody who's watching this. It's super frustrating to see that. And it's super frustrating too, to watch the Gelfling just sort of go along with all this, like everything's cool, nah, everything's okay, and then you get you get the subtle signs, right? Like the creatures starting to turn, and and things not seeming quite right, and yet there are so many that just decide to go ahead and be like, oh no, everything's fine, no, it's not a problem, it's just it's just a weird thing that happens sometimes, except for a few brave ones like Deet and Rianne. And Bria. And can I just say, by the way, that Hop, I know that social media is so Hop crazy right now, but Hop is one of those it characters, right? And Hop somehow reminded me of Yoda so much in a really backwards, stupid way that doesn't make any sense. But you know, like how when you first saw Yoda, and this is totally out of context, how much you just loved. Yoda instantly for his little idiosyncrasies and then you find out how powerful he really is and how serious of a Jedi he really is right well I kind of fell in love with Hop instantly because of his idiosyncrasies and just the relationship that he developed with Deet and it didn't matter if his sword was a spoon he was going to protect Brea at all costs he was going to protect Deet at all costs and Brea at all costs and and Rianne at one point he was going to protect his friends, no matter what, it didn't matter whether it was Skeksis or anything else. Those giant spiders who I can't think of the name of at the top, off the top of my head. He was going to protect his friends no matter what throughout this quest. It was almost like, you know, like how in Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee, right? You never really thought that he would do anything, right? You never really thought he'd get he'd be able to get his hands dirty. But, you know, he ends up, in a way, saving Frodo in Lord of the Rings, right? So it's almost like that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that Hup saves the day necessarily, but he's that lovable character that you don't expect to be able to play a key role in certain moments. And he really, really does on more than one occasion, actually. And switching gears a little bit to the voice cast, too. Mark Hamill does a fantastic job. I thought Anya Taylor-Joy... Does a great job as Brea. Taryn Edgerton really brings it as Rianne. And so many of the, the voice actors for the Skeksis who just raked my skin like nails on a chalkboard as much as they possibly could. But that's the job, right? You're supposed to hate the villain, and they were very, very hateable in this. And I loved Donna Kimball's Mother Agra, by the way, because of just how unfiltered she was and how annoyed she was at certain times it brought comic relief into what was otherwise quite frankly a really dark 
story. I mean, you have Gelfling dropping left and right. You have death after death. You have tragedy after tragedy, whether it be family or friend or otherwise. There's a lot of deep stuff going on here. How about what ends up happening with the Almandra, right? Where the, where the Almandra basically gets murdered by the Skeksis in front of her daughters, okay? And then what you have is is this battle to become the Almadra, and it's it's her own daughter that's siding with the Skeksis, despite the evidence that's right there to the contrary. Siding with the Skeksis, saying her mother's a traitor, she burns the body and all the stuff, and, and she gets challenged, and then she just decides, I don't want this crown anymore, I'm going to make my own, which you could either say is a baller move, or you could say, she's nuts. She is absolutely 100% certifiably insane. And then you get everybody that sort of learns about this after the fact, right? Like you've got Tavra who, who learns about it after the fact. You have Brea that learns about it after the fact, what happened to their mother. So it's it was just incredibly sad, but also lent itself to this fantasy story, right? You've got this Game of Thrones-like portrayal in a Jim Henson prequel property. And, I mean, this was really Game of Thrones level. And let me tell you, some of the deaths were were quite up there, too. And I know we're talking about puppetry here, but my goodness, some of these deaths were brutal. And I want to skip to that now because that is one thing for sure that the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance got right 100%. This was such a visually striking series. And the use of puppeting was unbelievable and so lifelike and realistic in what they did. I was astounded at how this looked and what they were able to do and exactly how much they brought realism into this. I was so, so impressed with how this looked because and I'm not saying that the original didn't look great for its time. It was groundbreaking as well, but this sets that kind of bar once again here in 2019 showing that you can do a series like this and you don't need a ton of CGI to make it interesting or make it look good. There's so much practicality in this and there's, and it's a certain way that it's shot that made it so gorgeous and beautiful, and I thought the emotions were more raw and more real because of that, too. And, you know, you see it in CGI, but you don't always feel it. And I felt it to my bones when you're talking about the stuff that's happening in Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. I mean, Rianne went through hell in this season of this of this show. Let's face facts here. Absolutely went through hell. Brea... The story that she went on and just her dogged determination to find answers and get the truth. That shows up when you're using practical effects. More so, if this was CGI, it would still have been good, but it would not have been as impactful, I don't think, if they did it that way. This was so beautifully done and executed. And just the world that was built and what you see, or as, as you could see more and more of Thra as things go along, you just kind of get caught up in the world a little bit, right? I actually had to go back and re-listen to some dialogue because I was so spaced out and lost 
in what I was looking at that I was like, okay, I, I completely just missed what was said and I need to go back and take care of that. That's how this looked to me. I was so impressed and I expected to be impressed based on the trailer. I think I talked about this when I talked about one of the trailers for Dark Crystal Age of Resistance was that I was surprised at how fluid the movements were in some of the action sequences and that definitely played itself out in this. And then you've got the inner power struggle too by the Skeksis getting back to the story a little bit that I kind of wasn't ready for and how they even will challenge each other because everybody seems to want that power and everybody thinks that they have a different way of going about getting it. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the Gelfling at times, right? Because they know that there's going to be a conflict coming at one point, but it still doesn't seem like like it's about that. Not necessarily because they don't take them seriously, but because... They need to watch their backs for themselves. So they can't even trust each other. It's almost like you could sit back and eventually they'd take care of themselves. And it wouldn't matter what the Gelfling did or not. But then they finally get their answers in a somewhat... You you either laughed at that moment where they got their answers or you were completely annoyed by it and you couldn't wait for it to be over. There there were times where I kind of went back and forth on that. But... But I got to tell you that, and then you've got the hunter who drops in, and I loved the hunter. If there's the Funko Pop that I would get for Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, it was the hunter because that was such a visually striking character. And then you think he's dead, and he's not, and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. So Rian's Rian's father died for nothing, basically, and that was so so frustrating. And then you see some of that play out a little bit later on. In the season as well. So there were so many gut-wrenching moments in a show that I didn't really expect to have this many gut-wrenching moments. Even though because it's a prequel series, you kind of know you kind of know what's gonna happen a little bit, but not exactly. So you get to see how things certainly play out. And they played out beautifully for me. I was really at high hopes for Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. I highly recommend it. Let the Skeksis annoy you. That's what they're supposed to do. And just get lost in the world of Thra and how much you would fight for Thra if you were in those same circumstances. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review, kind of, of Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix. How about we have a little bit more geek-tainment? Let's talk about Season 2 premiere of Titans on DC Universe on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciasa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just like the month of September kind of snuck up on us, that's right, the season two premiere of Titans on DC Universe is here. You can stream the first episode right now, as a matter of fact. And here's my spoiler-free review of the episode I've, I've asked to be spoiler-free, but if you didn't see season one of Titans, might talk about some spoilers that involves season one. And we'll start off with one because you remember how season one ended with Trigon coming through, right? Raven brings Trigon through and he sort of corrupts. That's the best way I could possibly put it, corrupts Dick Grayson. And you're kind of left to wonder what's going to happen from there. Now, I really am going to have a hard time talking about this episode without spoiling anything. So kind of bear with me. Here for a second. I will say that this is a very Raven heavy episode, especially in the beginning, and that is not a bad thing 
by any stretch of the uh, the imagination. As a matter of fact, I got to say that Tegan Croft has come such a long way from season one to season two. Even in this first episode, I was so impressed with how she did and how she just basically brought out her inner raven in this first episode. I mean, she I thought she did a pretty good job in the last season, but she's, you know, scared Rachel a lot last season. This season, it seems like right away in the first episode, she really, really comes into her own. So I got to give her a ton of credit just for this episode alone. So there's a lot that has to do with Raven in this first episode. That really shouldn't be much of a surprise. You get to, you get to see some of the other Titans as well. And we get to see a lot of the loose ends from last season's finale and even episodes before that sort of get tied up. As a matter of fact, if I'm being honest, the first half of this episode, at least the first half, I would say, I kind of feel like that's where that halfway point, and if you've already watched the episode, you know what I'm talking about. That halfway point, I feel like that's where... I would have ended season one. That's the, I think that would have been a really good ending for season one. Leaving it, leaving it on that Dick Grayson cliffhanger of him, him being turned or him being corrupted, however you want to put it. I, I guess I understand why you could make that your cliffhanger, but I feel like everything that happened after that in the first half of this first episode of season two, you, you could have had a pretty epic conclusion of season one if you brought it all the way up to that halfway point. Now, granted, it would have had to been a much longer episode or things would have had to be structured differently, so you couldn't necessarily do that. But what you're getting is you're getting a new beginning in this episode in season two of Titans. Obviously, with the casting announcement, you kind of figure that, right? That That's certainly not a spoiler by any stretch. But you're not getting this until the halfway point of the episode. Now, that is not a criticism by the way. I really really enjoyed this episode. So don't 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 think that I'm saying that this episode was bad because of that. It was just an interesting choice to make the first half of this episode feel very season 1-esque and then kind of start your season 2 in the middle of the episode. So it's like you continued your season 1 after quite a long absence. You continued the story of your first season and concluded that midway through your first episode of the second season and then got your second season started. And and there's a reason there's a reason that the certain characters that were announced for this season are where they are in this episode. I know that that's a very cryptic thing to say, but you will see a couple of moments that you're really hoping to see not just character-wise, location-wise, I can tell you that right now. It's just a very interesting way that the dynamic gets shifted in this episode a little bit. And and it makes you question who you're going to see more of, who you're going to see less of, as far as the Titans are concerned. And something going on with Robin, and by Robin I say Dick Grayson, I'll, I'll do that. And then we also have Jason Todd as part of this as well. But I'm just going to say Robin because Dick Grayson was the original Robin in in, the, in this first season. And, then of course, we see Jason Todd. But I don't want to ramble on too much about this. But you do get to see something involving him that's very, very important transitionally for him character-wise. There's, there's, there's a moment 
in this episode where you, where you kind of nod your head and go, okay, now we can do this sort of thing. So, so there are a lot of moments in here that I think you're really going to enjoy. You get to see some characters that you will not have to wait to see. You definitely get to see more Trigon. Obviously, we only get a little bit of a taste of Trigon in the season one finale. You get to see more of Trigon in this episode. And you can, maybe you've seen leaked photos or something like that, but you get to see, you know, what you want to see from Trigon. And what, what I really feel like this is, is that it almost feels like tonally there's a shift in the show as well. I mean, it was a super dark first season, and I know that there's certainly going to be plenty of moments of that in the second season as well, but it seems like there's a bit of a shift. There was a happier tone in at least a halfway point of this first episode where I feel like season two really begins. And it's it's really interesting because it does feel like a fresh start. It felt like a new beginning, whereas the very beginning of the episode, again, felt like a continuation. This second half feels like a new beginning for Titan. So only time will tell how long we get to the point of where we get to see the villain get involved or because of casting that we've seen villains. There are certain ones that you do not get to see in this first episode, but that shouldn't be a surprise. You don't want to just throw a whole bunch of villains out at once, right? So very, very interesting pacing in this episode. I I actually, after watching it a second time, I understood a little bit more and I felt like, okay, maybe this was the right call to leave it on the cliffhanger that they did. But imagine if they didn't get a second season, right? And you don't get to see this first half of this second episode. That loose end would have never really been tied up. So either they were really sure they were going to get a second season or they just locked out and we're like, okay, now we can tie up that loose end. Whew. All right. Yes, we can do that. So season two of Titans off to a very good start on DC universe. Make sure you're watching. Of course, new episodes drop every Friday. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the Titans Season 2 premiere. Up next, we've got a few nerd news items to tend to. We'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Consider this the short, short version. It's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that is because we actually do abandon ship. On the Down and Nerdy Podcast Studios, feeling the effects of Hurricane Dorian right now. So, the, you know, it's kind of affected the show. So, I'm literally holding my youngest son in my arms right now as I tell you about the latest nerd news. First thing I want to talk about is Jack Ryan Season 2 that's going to be coming to Amazon Prime Video. The new trailer just dropped for Season 2. It was one of my biggest surprise shows that I loved in Season 1. I didn't expect John Krasinski to be so good as Jack Ryan, and I didn't expect it to be so intense and in-depth. It was just amazing, so I couldn't wait to hear more about Season 2. And it's going to be coming out November the 1st on Amazon Prime Video. One thing that I really love is that they're going to tackle Venezuela. The president of Venezuela is going to have some sort of a counterattack that really hits home for Jack this season, according to the the synopsis that came out. We've also got Russians involved and all kinds of stuff. It's really, really crazy. But one of the things I think is great at the same time is is that you, we don't really see a lot involved with Venezuela. And you know that's a very volatile part of the country right now, so it's almost kind of like going true-to-life story, but bringing it into this fiction world of Jack Ryan. And as you saw in the trailer, if you saw it, we're, we're also talking about like a nuclear, a possibly nuclear Venezuela, and there's something going on with the president 
of Venezuela. It just seems really, really interesting and in-depth on what they're doing with Jack Ryan this year. And the way they were able to take the terrorist story last year and turn it into something so different and so personal, I cannot wait to see what they do with season two of Jack Ryan when it premieres on November the 1st. Here's another thing that I think was interesting this week in that Peter Capaldi, according to Deadline, has joined the cast of the Suicide Squad James Gunn version, not the sequel. James Gunn's been very specific about this, and I know I talked about Nathan Fillion last week. The reason I want to talk about this this week is because, and of course, every time I do something like this, the news ends up coming out as to who they're going to play and stuff like that, and, and what I say doesn't end up mattering anymore. But to me, it feels like this could be an opportunity to bring the Phantom Stranger in. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think this is a character that could be really, really cool in the DC movie universe. And I mean, why not do this at this point, right? I mean, this is a character that's that's now been the DC showcase animated short. We're going to see something about the Phantom Stranger there. He's going to get his own short. We also saw a live action Phantom Stranger in the one season only Swamp Thing series on DC Universe. So why not? They've already brought Enchantress into the mix. Why not bring in a mysterious character like the Phantom Stranger as well? We don't know if he's going to be the guy that has to, you know, walk the earth to to atone for his sins or whatever. But whatever version of this character I think they decide to do, just look at Peter Capaldi, Google Phantom Stranger if you're not, Phantom Stranger DC if you're not familiar with the character, and tell me that he wouldn't be an absolutely perfect Phantom Stranger, because I think that that's a role that he could really, really sink his teeth into and do extremely well with. Here's something else that's very interesting, speaking of the DC movie universe, and it's got fans kind of a little bit upset, and that is that the new Birds of Prey and Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn teaser trailer that's going to be coming out, only going to be... In theaters. Now, the recent Chris Nolan movie, if I'm not mistaken, Christopher Nolan movie, did the same thing and only showed their trailer in theaters. And I know we live in this instant gratification world of, well, it's going to be on YouTube. Oh, it's going to be on social media. I want it now. Why do I have to go to the movies to see it? Blah, blah, blah. Remember when going to see a trailer and when you go to see a movie, you see a trailer for a movie that you didn't even know about or that you've been waiting for and how exciting that was why is that a bad thing why is doing that a bad thing and i'm not saying that anybody's going to go to the theater just to see this trailer it's a possibility i guess because i really want to see this trailer but it's going to take more than that to drag me to any specific movie just to see this trailer so yeah that's not something that i'm really going to be thinking about doing but at the same time you can't deny that this is an interesting tactic because either one of two things are going to happen You're going to get people that are going to see a specific movie, but they're also going to talk about the trailer because this was the only place that you could see it and people want everybody to know, hey, I saw the teaser and here's what I think of it. Or you're going to get the fans tweeting about this that are mad, wondering why you can't watch it online and why you can't watch it on social media, which, come on. It's not like they're never going to release a trailer or a teaser online. We already got a little, just a tiny, tiny teaser what, months ago? I know that that wasn't enough, but it's not like we're never going to get anything before this movie releases. It's going to be a while before we see this movie anyway. So I don't think that anybody has to really get up in arms over whether or not we're going to see something 
online. But either way, brilliant move as far as I'm concerned by Warner Brothers to do this. Because either way, you're getting people talking about your movie. Quickly as we wrap this thing up, because I don't know how quickly Hurricane Dorian's going to get here and knock on our door, even though we, we abandoned ship. But I wanted to talk about something that Deadline reported that is a timeless reunion. And somebody that already misses Timeless terribly, and I don't think that we're going to get another Timeless movie, so I'm bummed out about that. How about a little Timeless reunion on The Boys Season 2 from Amazon? Because Goran Viznich and Claudia DeMitt are both going to be on the series in recurring roles. Maybe we'll get that Rufus and Gia reunion. Maybe Rhea will form once again because Malcolm Barrett, already a part of the show, kind of, you know, he's part of that creative team that, that, that kind of, you know, tries to market the superheroes. And, I mean, it's really no surprise because, I mean, Eric Kripke was one of the showrunners on Timeless and Goran and Claudia are very super talented act actors. So it's really no surprise that they'll be on the show. Actually, Goran Business is just going to play Alistair Adana, who is the leader of kind of a mysterious church. And it'll be interesting to see how that factors in to this second season, especially with everything that's going on with the butcher right now and and with how that whole thing ended with season one and homelander and what's going on the rest of the boys yeah it'll be very interesting and how about claudia demit going to be playing a character named victoria newman who is a young and up-and-coming congresswoman so maybe like an alexandra ocasio-cortez-esque character maybe who knows could be really interesting because you know bringing again bringing real life into the fictional world and the boys seem to do that pretty well and they have no problem going ahead and and getting a little bit topical at times that's for sure if you saw season one so a lot of exciting things coming really to amazon prime video that's what i'm learning on the show this week so Let's keep that theme going and talk about more Amazon Prime Video. How about my interviews with the star and producers of Amazon's Undone? Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Nathan Darrow from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just because we're escaping Hurricane Dorian doesn't mean we're not able to talk about Amazon's Undone, which is going to be coming out next week on Amazon Prime Video. As a matter of fact, I got a chance to sit down with the star of the show, Rosa Salazar, and the producers of the show as well. As a matter of fact, the first question for Rosa was, do you approach animated and live action roles differently? Yes, but this is a live action role. Um, we film it uh, and then... We film it in live action. Okay. We film it like in a black box setting in a room smaller than this, actually, uh, with practical things like a table and a chair, and then everything else is painted in. Um, so you you do approach voice acting different from live action, but this was live action. And uh, the things that were different about it are that um, we're only interacting with certain things. So sometimes there are things that are taped out onto the floor. Like, oh, by the way, you just walk through a couch. That's going to be painted in later. So just remember there's a couch here and don't walk through it. Uh, but if you and I are doing a dinner scene, they would wheel out a table and two chairs and props that we absolutely have to interact with. And uh, all of those things 
lines would be roto-lined, right. which means traced, and then hand-painted in later. But all of the backdrops are actually, you didn't ask this, but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> they're all hand-painted, classically painted oil paintings. So even something as banal as a, a tiled wall in a bathroom is a classically painted oil painting. So there's something like 200 oil paintings per episode. Next question was, talk more about the rotoscoping style of Undone. The first Disney films were, were made that way. They were filmed live action, and then they were traced because they did not animate that yet. So it is very much that that same, it is that same style that, that Disney used in the very beginning, only now we do have uh, the technology that we have now. So it's more crisp, it's more lifelike, it's... it's more uh, rich. The next question for Rosa Salazar was, how does this, how did this differ from what you did with Alita Battle Angel, which she also starred in? Uh, that was a more mutated version of me. This is, this is just simply me. This is like, uh, everything is in the right proportion up there. So, um, I loved it. You know, I love doing things like that because I, I like to disengage with my, myself, self, uh, my body, um, my, my skeleton. I like to experience it from, from the way you experience it. And I can because I have this sort of barrier, although it's undeniably me. Um, I loved it. When I saw it, I was extremely, I was extremely proud of it. And they let me watch the first two episodes. Uh, they gave me a link, which never give anyone a link. Um, but, uh, but I watch it religiously over and over and over again. I'm hypercritical. I, I I can find something wrong in heaven, you know. I'm I'm I can always find something. I'm so critical of my work. I'm extremely hard on myself, um, but I could find nothing wrong with it, and uh, and it. it I'm so proud of it. I'm probably the proudest of this than I've ever been of anything in my life because it it touches on a few key things, a few key themes that I, I dealt with in my own life, you know, um, uh, mental illness, uh, the death of a father, a charged relationship with a mother, you know, sibling relationship, uh, lover relationship, and uh, questioning my own reality and my own spirituality. So. Um, what did I feel when I watched it for the first time? Everything. I, I, I cried a lot. I still cry. I almost cried on stage. Next question was simple. Talk about your character. Well, I'm almost 28 years old, and she's having sort of a quarter-life crisis. If, I mean, that seems kind of a layman's term for it, but it's uh, that's what she's going through. She's seeing, oh, uh, I'm at this age where I'm seeing the monotony. I'm seeing the patterns here, and is this it? Is there nothing more to it than this? I wake up, I get dressed, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I come home. I wake up, I get dressed, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I come home. I wake up, I eat breakfast, I get... I mean, it's... Is that it? Uh, so she starts to unravel, in a way. She lost her father. Nobody really wants to talk about it. Her sister is very much like, you grow up, you get married, you, you have kids, and then you grow old, and then you have grandkids, and the whole plan is there. I have a 10-year plan. She's the opposite side of the spectrum, which, quite frankly, it seems like an antidote, because it's just, she's not aware that 
You're on this like treadmill, sister. So she gets into a fight with her sister and she has, suffers a near fatal car accident. She slips into a coma and when she wakes up, she starts to be able, she, she sees, starts to see her deceased father and communicate with him. And she asks him, am I going crazy? Like Geraldine, her grandmother who suffered from schizophrenia, am I going, am I going crazy? And, um, and his answer is quite vague. <laughs> He's like, no, no, well, kind of. And I think that that's really the question we're all sort of asking the whole series is, is she, is she just crazy? Is none of this real? Is this all in her mind? Or is she a shaman? Is she, does she have magical abilities? Or is she just schizophrenic? Is this just uh, some? Just, just she just hit her front temporal lobe, and now she's, you know, crazy. So she's sort of going on this journey with, through her spirituality, trying to figure out her own, you know, where she is in this world. What is her own reality? While also going on a journey with her dead father. To back to the night where he was killed to see if she can change the course of events so she could have him back. And finally, my question for Rosa Salazar was, how do you feel like this show deals with the manipulation of time to kind of make things unique? <laughs> how do you feel like this show deals with that manipulation of time in a unique, unique way? Because we've seen time manipulation done in other things before. How do you feel like this show brings a unique perspective to that? Well, I think it's unique because we do it in rotoscope. And when you have that ability to seamlessly morph in and out of scenes, seamlessly morph from floating through sky to falling into a bed, it becomes more fluid. We don't know where one thing begins and one thing ends. When, with, through animation, you can really start to mess with where we are, when it is. If it's two weeks from now, we can morph everything around us to be two weeks from now. Um, it also kind of makes you lost, in a way. You know, you're like, well, well, actually, where am I? And, and I think that's on purpose, because you're with her. You're with her on this journey. And when you're confused, she's confused. I mean, imagine how much of a, 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 a mind blank <laughs> that uh, mind fuck that would be. If you suddenly were sort of falling through time and space and repeating things that you had just done, um, when when she's going through that, you're going through that. And when we do, because we did it through rotoscope, you can have her in a hospital bed, and you can have the world flying by, and you can really start to grasp those uh, intangible aspects of what it's like to have uh, a panic attack, what it's like to have a mental breakdown, what it's like to see beyond um, what you and I. Well, I don't know about you, but. Um, <laughs> What it's, what it's like to, to see beyond the curtain. What it's like f maybe for a guy who's on a street corner having a full-on conversation with someone who isn't there. Maybe they are there. So when you have this ability to do it in animation, you have the ability to do it in rotoscope, um, that's, that's really going to afford you a lot of liberties when you're dealing with that time-space bending aspect. Next up was one of the co-creators of the show, Raphael Bob Waksberg, 
And the first question for him was, what went into the decision to actually use rotoscoping? Yeah, I, I, I actually don't remember when that like decision happened. I mean, I remember there was a series of conversations with Kate and then with Hisco Helsing, our director. Um, and I was really excited about the idea because I, I've never seen a show fully rotoscoped like this. I mean, it's, it's a huge undertaking. Um, but I love the look of it, and I love the promise of it, and I think we all really got excited about the possibilities of it, and, and, and the ways in which you get sucked into that world with rotoscope animation. It's very different from the way you watch other animated shows or even live-action shows, um, and it felt like it complemented our scripts really well, and it, it, it gave us possibilities uh, for performance um, that we could really take advantage of, so it was really exciting. I like the way that the, the style of animation really grounds us in the real world and makes it feel like, oh, these are people, these are sisters, this is a relationship between a, a, a woman and her boyfriend or a woman and her, her mother. Um, this isn't like a crazy, fantastical comic book show. This is, uh, you know, this is the real world. And then, but because it's animated and not live action, when the more magical stuff starts to happen, it doesn't all of a sudden feel like, oh, here comes the special effects. It, it feels like an outgrowth of what the show already is. So it kind of, it straddles that very real and very fantastical uh, line in a really cool way, I think. My question for Raphael was, how much is what's going on with Alma actually affecting some of her other interpersonal relationships throughout the show? So a lot of this is about Alma and her dad, but how much does what's going on with her actually affect some of the other interpersonal relationships? Oh, very much. I mean, it's, you know, in the, the, the first two episodes, um, the first episode is very much about her relationship and the people in her lives in the present, and the second episode is very much about her relationship with her father in the past, um, and then the rest of the season is really about both, and it's about, you know, what is this journey she's going on with her father, how is it affecting things in the quote-unquote real world, you know, is it, is it making her a better, more fulfilled person, or is it taking her away from that reality, and that's, that's a question we want people to be asking all season, that's a question she herself is asking all season, but it is, it is very much about, I think it's a show about relationships, and it's a show about her relationship with her father, but just as much her relationship with her sister and her boyfriend and her mother. And finally, the next question for Raphael was, how long did it take to actually shoot all of this? We did one episode at a time, and we'd go like a month between episodes, because it took so long to prep, because we had to storyboard, and we had, and then we had to rotoscope, so it's such a long process um, that it, it took a very long time to shoot, but it was all these like bursts. It was like, okay, we got the crew, we got the cast, let's do this real fast. And so all of our cast was also like doing other stuff. You know, Bob was shooting Better Call Saul. We were like, okay, we got Bob for like three days. Let's get all the Bob and Rosa scenes in on this day. It was like a, a, a scheduling nightmare, but I, I'm really amazed that we were able to get it. And I think it speaks to how much all the actors believed in the material and they wanted to be there. And they, they were able to make, their, make themselves available on that crazy schedule to do like, okay, three days here, and then you're go do something else for two months, and then we're going to have you back. Next up was the show's other creator, Kate Purdy, and the first question that was posed to her was, we've heard about Alma, now let's talk about her father's character a little bit. So Bob Odenkirk plays our dad, Jacob Winograd. Uh, he died back in 2002. Um, he's a scientist, he's a professor of theoretical physics, um, and he approaches his daughter from the astral plane and tells her, listen, I caused this car accident because 
I need you to figure out how to access these extrasensory abilities that are innate within you so that you can travel back in time and save me. It wasn't an accident, I was murdered. I need you to travel back and figure out what happened and change the course of history. Speaking of other relationships, the next question was, how do the sisters get along? The sisters are a funny pair because they're very different. Um, Alma's, uh, Alma's character, who's played by Rosa Salazar, is always questioning reality, questioning our purpose here, questioning whether or not there's more to our experience in life and, and what we're doing and why we're doing it. <laughs> And her sister Becca, who is played by Anjali Cabral, um, is fine. She loves life. Life is good. Life works with her. She goes along. She gets along. She plays the game. She's good at the game. She wins at the game. It's not an issue. So oftentimes they don't see eye to eye on that. But they have a profound love for each other, a profound respect for each other. Um, they do get in fights. They do take little jabs at each other. They know how to hurt each other. Uh, but um, ultimately, they realize that they share such family history together that at a deeper level, there's more in common than either of them could anticipate. And finally, my question was, I'd actually read something about Kate Purdy going into talking about the undone, so I wanted to ask her about it, and I asked her how important it was to bring the focus on mental health in this show. It seems like there's a lot of focus on mental health in this show. How important was it for you to be able to bring that out in this show a little bit with these characters? And how personal was this story? Um, so the, the story in terms of mental health is actually very personal for me. My grandmother was schizophrenic, and there's schizophrenia in the family, and I never really quite understood all of it because there's a bit of secrecy around it, sort of like a, a shroud of mystery for me. She died before I was born, my father doesn't really like to talk about it, um, and so I always kind of wondered about my own mental health or my own uh, genetics, if this could awaken in me at a time where I wouldn't expect it or wouldn't know what to do about it. And then, in fact, you know, have experienced depression off and on, and then in my mid-30s had a real nervous breakdown, um, had depression, anxiety, and couldn't find my way out of it. Uh, but that ended up being the best gift of my life because I sought alternative paths, and I found meditation, and I found um, different healing modalities out of India and Central and South America and the Polynesian Islands, and I started exploring um, these shamanistic cultures and their experience or their mentality around mental health and the fact to them that oftentimes it is a gift. Sometimes it's an ancestor reaching through and saying you're on the wrong path or um, it's, a, it's a way for you to get to a deeper place to realize I'm deluding myself. Um, I'm creating this bubble of delusion to protect myself but actually I'm hurting people and I'm hurting myself and I need to make amends. I need to heal these relationships. I need to heal myself. So thinking about how to explore that, how to explore that in storytelling, how to message that, um, how to see characters going through something similar so hopefully people can maybe recognize themselves in it or recognize someone else and realize maybe there's more to how we perceive reality or more to how we perceive our experiences. Maybe um, happiness isn't always the ultimate goal or, or isn't always the norm or how we should always be feeling. Uh, and maybe these other feelings are gifts that we should tune into and understand. I'll tell you, from the second I saw the trailer for Undone, I was hooked. It's just this world that seems like it's swirling and it keeps you off balance. And it seems so amazing and unique, and not just the way it's shot, but the way the story is told as well. This is a series 
that you are going to want to add to your queue and watch starting September the 13th on Amazon Prime Video. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Amazon and everyone involved with Undone for letting me be part of the press room at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Hopefully we won't be chasing away from a hurricane next week on the show, but you can always follow what we've got going on at downandnerdypodcast.com. On social media, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram, and Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, and be good to your fellow nerds.